So there was a news report uh, about a middle school in Oregon where it had a really unique problem, something I, I have never experienced as a teacher, uh, but it was one of those kind of, huh, that's interesting. The problem was, was that a number of girls had decided they were going to start wearing lipstick. And so, kind of to go against parents' wishes, they waited until they got to school to put the lipstick on. And they would do it in the mirror in the girls' bathroom. And to make sure it was on right, they would then kiss the mirror. And it was like, oh, look at all these lip smacks on the mirror. Well, very shortly, it became a form of pranking the school. And every day, the entire mirror Every mirror in the girls' bathrooms across the school had lip smacks on them. And every morning they'd come in, it would be cleaned off, and they'd do it again. Well, finally, the principal had enough of this. He said, young ladies, come with me. He took several ladies that had the evidence on their face that they had the lips, lipstick on, took them down to the bathroom, and brought the custodian in and said, look it, this is the person you're making work that hard. The custodian then showed the ladies exactly how he cleaned the mirrors off, and from that day forward, there was not another single lip smack on the mirrors. When the vice principal asked the principal, what did you do? How did you stop it? The principal said, I just had the custodian show how he cleans the, cleans the mirrors off. And she said, well, what, what, what does that look like? The custodian goes, I came in, I take the brush, I go right over to the toilet, and I get it wet, and I come up and I scrape off the mirror. And that put an end to all of the girls kissing the mirror. Now, letting girls know that they're kissing the mirror is the same as kissing the inside of a toilet bowl is a simple way to change actions. But does it change the heart? Does it change the actual root of the desire to prank, the desire to make the school clean up after you? No, it doesn't. So today we're going to look at how do we change habits? How do we change things that are sins in our lives? How do we change what we say? Do we lie? Do we swear? Do we slander? Or do we just have a plain old potty mouth? I guess those girls had potty mouths, right? What if it's something else? What if it's actions? What if it's thought life? What if it's coveting and lust or stealing? See, there's all sorts of outward ways. We can put rules and guidelines. We can talk about the end result of what happens if you keep doing something. But ultimately, it does not change the heart. This morning, Jesus is telling us it's not the outside that changes the inside. It's the inside that changes the outside. So the un unrighteous speech and un un unrighteous behavior comes not from outside of us, it comes from inside of us. Our words and actions are symptoms of our hearts. So today, the main point of this passage is the Pharisees figure out what makes good and completely get it backwards. They think that a person's outward actions make them right, instead of focusing on the internal, the heart. Jesus is teaching us today that the heart is the source of our affections, our passions, our drives, and yes, unfortunately, our sins as well. We see this, Matthew chapter 12, either make a tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit, you brood of vipers, 
How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Jeremiah said something similar in 17.9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? New Living Translation says it. Human heart is the most deceitful of all things. Desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? So this sounds like bad news. This sounds like a very bad issue. Like, okay, I thought I had it bad in that I was doing all these outward things. You're telling me it's not just that I'm doing these outward things, but my heart is putrid? Wow, what, a, what an awesomely positive message we got for today. But I'll tell you, there is good news, and it's at the end. And so bear with me as we dig through the bad news first. So let's talk a little bit about this word defilement. We see this in the passage, this idea of unclean. Now, I guarantee you, most of you are not here today because you said, you know, this week I feel defiled. I need to come here. This week I feel unclean. I'm ceremonially unclean, therefore I need to go to church on Sunday. If you do feel that, you came to the right place. But for most of us, we go, yeah, I don't feel that unclean. Maybe I do a few bad things, but I am not a bad person. I do a few bad things, but my heart is just fine. Today, we're going to look at what Jesus' diagnosis is, because it was really clear what he's arguing to the disciples, though they pretend they don't get it. It's really clear to us today what he's saying as well. So what does this word defile mean? Well, I think a good word to fit in its place is the word polluted. Pollution. We see this word a lot. It's in the news. It's in discussions. This word means to be polluted. It means to be dirtied. We see this word five times here. It means to make unclean. The Greek word used here is the antonym, the opposite of clean. So whatever your definition of clean is, the word defile is the exact opposite. Not just a little, but the exact opposite. This word defilement is used in the Old Testament 175 times. Places like Psalm 119.1 that says, Blessed are those whose way is blameless. That means undefiled. Daniel 1.8, Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to not defile himself. The New Testament spends a lot of time talking about this word defile. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled, unpolluted, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That's the same word there, unstained. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it they become defiled. In Hebrews, we're also called to follow Jesus' example. Hebrews seven twenty six. for it is indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, which is unpolluted, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. So it's clear. We can go through a hundred other passages that the Bible calls us to be undefiled, to be unpolluted. So how do we get to that? What, what do we, how do we make sense of that? Well, I think the first thing we need to do is we need to look at the question that the Pharisees are posing and that we pose and the world poses. And the question is this, if I do good things, doesn't that make me a good person? And we go even farther and say, if I do righteous things, does that make me a righteous person? Or if I do godly things, does that make me a godly person? If I do the right things, do I get to go to heaven? 
is the ultimate question. And we see that here in the Pharisees last week. They brought up the fact that the disciples were not washing their hands. Remember, we talked about that. They'd pour the water here, and it would go down to there, and it would go down to here, and then they'd turn their hands over, and they'd do it again, and then they'd rub it all together, and then they'd do the hokey pokey. That was still a joke from last week, but I'm just going to use it this week, all right? So the, the disciples were doing this, and they were not doing the washing like they were supposed to. And the Pharisees say, don't you know that's what makes you righteous? That's what makes you clean? And now Jesus had harsh words for them, and they continue here, verse 10. And he, Jesus, called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. So who is this crowd? Well, this is the crowd from back in chapter 14, the last three verses. Remember, he, the, the disciples have landed in Gennesaret, and they're hanging out with the people, and they bring all the people to them, and all of them get healed. It's this same group that has now witnessed the confrontation with the Pharisees, and Jesus is going, I want you to understand this. This idea of hear and understand is kind of a colloquialism that means this is very important. I want you to hear me, but more importantly, I want you to get what I'm saying. I want you to internalize it and not just have it be, it just kind of floats out there. He says, I want you to know what makes a person unclean. Now, it's important to note here that this is nothing to do with germs. This uncleanness that is being talked about here, the washing of hands, has nothing to do with germs. And let me tell you why. Jewish law permitted all sorts of containers to get the water out of. And one of the containers specifically it said it was okay to take water from was a container made of cow poop. So if they want clean hands and not eating things on their hands when they're eating or having things on their hands when they eat, then God didn't understand how cow poop is made. See, the Pharisees had added all sorts of rules. They even said as long as it's water, it's okay. Even if your animals won't drink from it, you can wash your hands with it. How bad does water have to be for most animals to not drink it? But it's okay to wash our hands with it. So this is nothing to do with sanitation, has everything to do with sanctification. Remember, the Pharisees and scribes taught that there were things you could not touch and there was things you had to do. And these were the criteria in order to be a good Jewish citizen, to be clean, to be right. Jesus, on the other hand, steps in and says, no, no, we need to get to the heart of this issue. We need to get to the actual root of why it exists. Jesus is the ultimate shepherd. He wants to care for the flock. He doesn't want them to be confused. Yes, they had all these laws that the Pharisees put out there, and we can chuckle and laugh at them because they're ridiculous. How far you can walk? Well, what if you go one more step? Oh, no, right? All these things, and they deserve to be ignored, but that's not what Jesus wants them to see. Jesus wants them to see that there is a diagnosis here that is being made, that their heart is the root of the issue. And if we don't deal with the heart, it doesn't matter what outward things we do. And if we're honest, we're the same way as the Pharisees. We're the same way as the Jews. We make a nice list of things that make us right with God. We clean up the outside. We put on a show, especially when we come to church, especially with our church friends. But then we live a different way. And that dichotomy between the ways we live and the way we are inside is, is the problem. Spurgeon says, true religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts are filthy, 
we are filthy in the sight of God. For our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands could ever be. The very life of our being lies in the inner nature, and hence the imperative need for purity of heart. See, good behavior does not make you a good person. Good behavior cannot change anything. I mean, think about some of the rules and laws we've had in the last two years, two and a half years. Anybody have any laws that they were like, I'll do it, but I don't like it? I mean, do I need to make the mask going on, right? I mean, we we know this, right? We know that there are laws that we do not like. There are rules. Kids, I mean, I've got youth and I've got young kids in here. You don't need to raise your hand and, and write yourself out. But there are rules that you go, I don't like these rules. And you're like, okay, I'll do it. I'm not going to like it. I mean, if we're honest, that's the way it is with a lot of things. And sometimes we get that way with the Lord's rules too. And that is such a tell on each of us that our hearts are not in the right place. Because the inner nature is going to always rebel against true goodness. So Jesus at this point is saying, the Pharisees have taught you one thing. God wants the antithesis. He doesn't care about your outward if your inward is not done. He says, let's fix the inward and then your outward will follow. And praise be to God, the Holy Spirit allows us to live the life we're supposed to. But first, he's got to take up residence and work in the heart. Defilement is not an outside matter, it's an inside matter. Christianity is the only religion that deals with the heart first and foremost. And we miss this. Because the outside is a whole lot easier to deal with. And every other religion, including the secular religion and the atheist religion, all deal with the outward. What are you doing? Are you saying the right things? Are you doing the right things? Are you not touching the right things? I mean, that's the world in a nutshell. Christianity goes, all of those are good, but the heart is the main thing. Now, some of you get this. You've seen this. I know that some of you have come out of other systems or religions where they told you one thing and it was you had to do these things and then you saw the gospel and it was like going from black and white to full color. It was going from darkness into light. And so for some of us who've been in these churches our whole lives, we have a hard time seeing this. we got to re-examine. Are we worried about the heart or are we worried about a bunch of actions? The actions flow from the heart is what Jesus is saying. So at this point you should be asking a question. Pastor John, you just said that all of this ceremonial stuff is just cleaning up the outside of a dirty cup, right? So why did God tell the Jews to do it? Why is the Old Testament, your Old Testament that you can open right now, why does it have lists and lists of rules? Why does Leviticus exist, right? Why is it there? I mean, I know the Pharisees went overboard. They're the super serious, right? They take it really serious. But what do we do with all these rules, all these guidelines? Well, let me tell you a few of them so I can kind of set the stage, because some of you might be like, I don't know Leviticus. Let me, let me help you. The lists of animals in the Bible that you could not eat is rather long. There were other lists of what you could eat based on hooves and what they chewed in their mouths. There were certain birds you could eat. Other birds, which we know are very tasty, you couldn't eat. There were things you could touch. There were other things you couldn't touch. There were things that you could cook a certain way, but not cook another way. There's a reason why in Israel they don't have cheeseburgers. Okay, you can't have cheese and meat touching itself. That's a rule. There were certain diets. There were certain clothing. Many of you are violating the law right now with the clothing you're wearing. There's a mass of ceremonies in the Old Testament. 
If you touch a dead animal, Leviticus 11, you're unclean. If you eat a dead animal's carcass after it died of its own natural causes, unclean, Leviticus 22. If you have unnormal body fluids and you touch it, unclean, Leviticus 15. Women were unclean during their menstruation period. Anyone who touches anything unclean or a person who is unclean, it spreads. Childbirth rendered a woman unclean for seven days. Touching a person with leprosy rendered you unclean. A dead body, trying to touch a dead body or going to a funeral rendered you unclean. Creeping things. So all the little boys who love to go and grab the creeping things and bring them home and they mysteriously get out in your house, they're unclean, which we already knew those little boys were unclean. (laughs) All of these made them ceremonially unclean. And we look at that list and we go, what on earth is this all about? Well, the first thing is, is that the word unclean does not mean sinful. These were not sinful things. They were things that rendered them unclean in which they had to do something to be able to be clean to come and worship the Lord. That's the purpose of it. Now you're going, that didn't help at all. That didn't clear anything up. So how do we make sense of this? What we need to understand is that what God did with Israel was he went down, and we talked about this last week, he went down and he grabbed a nation by the scruff of its neck and said, you're mine. And then he brought him, them in to his presence and he began drilling into them this is what i'm like this is what i'm like i am like this and you wonder why the old testament's so repetitive it's because god is drilling in the basics into israel see god gave the old testament to them this is early days of god's redemptive plan this is the very basics the new testament calls it the rudimentary this is the abc's and the one, two, threes. We're not talking advanced calculus here in the Old Testament. When we're talking about how God brought it forward, he is saying, this is what I'm like. Now, when you teach a child, when you take them and you're going to be reading them a book, what do those books have in it that you give them? Pictures, right? The Old Testament is full of pictures of what God's like. The ceremonial cleaning and being unclean is a picture It's letting us know that God is so other that even our daily, regular occurring things make us unclean and we need help to go into his presence. I mean, what parent in their right mind would hand their kid a copy of War and Peace? Say, there you go, two-year-old, get going. Or an encyclopedia. See, the Old Testament is a book full of pictures. The ceremonial law are pictures to show us what God is like. God is saying, do you see you can't come into my presence when you're ceremonially unclean? You need someone to clean you. And those pictures, and as you get more and more into those pictures, and it's easy to go, oh, well, Pastor John just said we should skip the Old Testament. It's like a kid's book. All right, no, that's not what I'm saying here. What I'm saying is, is these pictures are just coming into focus by the more you know Christ. And the more you see those Old Testament pictures, the more you can see the New Testament clearly. I mean, just study the temple or the tabernacle, and man, you see so much about Jesus there, it just blows your mind. And granted, there are some portions of the Old Testament that are advanced calculus, right? Ezekiel, can we get an amen on that one, right? There's some places where it is high, so don't say that I'm unhitching the Old Testament. The Old Testament must be there. But understand this, when we see the ceremonial law rightly, that it's this picture, all of a sudden verses start making sense, right? 
How about Matthew 5.17? You guys have seen this one. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. See, it's the, even the picture, right? The picture's there, and Jesus goes, I've come to explain the picture. I've come to make the picture make more sense and see it more clearly. So the Pharisees, they didn't get this. One part, because they don't want to even listen to anything Jesus has to say. And the other part is, is they've idolized their law. Look at verse 12. The disciples came to him and said, do you know the Pharisees were offended with what you were saying? Hmm, okay. Pharisees are upset. Now, why did the disciples do this? Well, if we remember last week, these Pharisees were from Jerusalem. They were the upper crust of the Pharisees. There's Pharisees living where they are in Galilee. But here, these guys come down from Jerusalem. This is a big deal. And so the disciples are still thinking, these guys are important. Jesus, you just kind of made them mad. Jesus probably should have said, get used to it. I mean, because it's going to happen over and over again. The Pharisees understood what Jesus was saying. They had reasons to be upset. He's calling them out. See, what happened was the Pharisees' idol had been poked. And when you poke a person's idol, they get upset. We need to remember that when we're talking to people about the Lord. When we talk about Jesus as being the only God and people get upset about that, it's not because they, they don't like Jesus. They just like their idol that they're worshiping in its place. So don't take that as a personal affront. Take it as, you just nailed it. You poked their idol, and they're defending it. Because idols are what? They're dead pieces of wood, right? They do nothing. So we have to defend them. Well, what kind of God do you have to defend? It's pretty pathetic. Last week, Jesus called these Pharisees hypocrites, which means to be phony. So these spiritual phonies don't like that their masks are being torn off. So Jesus is not making the case. Jesus is making the case for having nothing to do with these Pharisees. So the disciples say, you made them mad. And Jesus is going to go, you know what? Let's make it even worse. Don't have anything to do with them. Look at verse 13. He answered, every plant that my Father, Heavenly Father, has not planted will be uprooted. He says, don't have anything to do with them because their in judgment is in store. It's coming. Jesus is echoing Psalm 1 that says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, its leaf does not wither. And all he does he prospered. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's saying, you need to understand these Pharisees are not planted by me. They're not planted by God. And they are going to be uprooted in the judgment. Notice he doesn't say uprooted by him right now. We saw this earlier in the wheat and the tares parable, which talked about wheat and weeds that look just like wheat being put together in a field. And Jesus says, don't pull up the tares you'll accidentally pull up some wheat. So the Pharisees get to stay around, but their judgment is coming. So they're, they're destined for judgment. The next thing Jesus says in verse 14, he says, let them alone. It's kind of a weak translation. What it means is stay away from them. Have nothing to do with them. These false teachers, these hypocrites, these people who say one thing and live another, these people who put extra weight on the people of things they had to do, he says, have nothing to do with them. Doesn't matter how much press they get. 
doesn't matter how big their church is, how many degrees, how many schools they teach at, have nothing to do with them if they're not matching God's word. This is not what you would have expected. The disciples probably would have been like, well, they can't all be bad. Jesus is saying, no, nothing to do with them. And then he tells us why in the rest of 14. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Now the Pharisees had a couple names for themselves. One of them was Pharisee, which meant set apart ones. They also had a name for themselves called the guides of the blind. It's pretty presumptuous, don't you think? That we have the answers and you all are blind? I mean, you want to go to that church, the church that guides you blind people? Can't see spiritually, so you have to come to a Pharisee? So instead, Jesus turns this on its ear. Instead of guides to the blind, they are blind guides. He uses their phrase against them and says, you are blind people leading blind people. He's saying, there is no way you can lead somebody. They knew the law, they interpreted it, they taught, but they were not following what the Bible said. Matthew Henry says, there's no, none so blind as those who will not see. They had Jesus standing right in front of them. The Word made flesh right in front of them, and they chose not to see. There's nothing more harmful to the spiritual life of people that you're teaching than to teach one thing and live another thing. The self-deceived be blind. And look what he says. He says, they will fall into a pit together. They're going to the pit together. This word pit is kind of an allusion to Sheol or the place of the dead. He's saying they're leading to death. So the first thing we see in this little section is we need to oppose false teaching. False teaching is something we must ignore. We must have nothing to do with. Oppose it, refute it, reject it, but most importantly, have nothing to do with it. Ignore it. Jesus says, don't be afraid of these false teachers. God's in control and his judgment is coming. So this is a good opportunity for us to pause and recognize the only way we can see false teachers is by knowing God's word. That's it. Not by who's preaching up here on Sundays, not by what songs we have, not by what books we've read, but how well do we know God's word? This is the only way, the only way to spot a false teacher. A famous quote, visit many books but live in the Bible. Guess who that one's from? Yeah, it's from Spurgeon. See, we must live in the Bible. So if you don't have a Bible, get one. If you don't have a Bible app, get multiple. You need to be in the Bible. You need to be there every day. If you don't have one, our resource table out here has lots, many different translations. If your Bible reading's gone stagnant, go get a new translation and start over again. There are also these, these Bible journals that we have for Matthew. We got them for other books of the Bible. Take them. Pour yourself into reading and studying Get to know your Bible. Study and study and read and read. And if that's not for you, you're not a reader, then listen. There are more Bible options to listen to on YouVersion and so many other apps. Get it. Go to the library. Check it out on CD. I don't know if they have cassettes anymore, but I'm sure you could dig one up. Whatever you need to do to get God's Word going into you, you need to do it. You can do this. You can do it on your own, but even better yet, do it as a part of a group. We've got a women's Bible study. They meet right here in the chapel tomorrow night. Ladies, get here. Men, we meet the second Tuesday of every month, and you're like, okay, how am I going to keep track of that? Well, praise the Lord. Pull out your phone right now and go to newlifenw.com slash subscriptions and sign up for the men's Bible study. Sign up for the women's information. 
You'll get all of this. There's no reason for it not to be there. There's many, many options. If you don't want to do that, there's a table right out here that says life groups, and underneath it has a list of everything printed out on paper. I mean, come on, we're making this so easy for you all, right? There's no reason to not know our Bibles. Visit good books, but live in God's Word. Live in it. See, the disciples really have no excuse because they don't have to go find a Bible somewhere that they like the translation of. No, the Word of God is right in front of them and they're following them around. You realize when the Bible, we've only got probably like 5 to 10% of all the things Jesus said to his disciples. I mean, think about the thousands upon thousands of conversations that Matthew had around the fire while they're eating, while they're walking. I mean, man, there's so much there. They had it right in front of them. And yet still, they struggle. They struggle and struggle. We need to not be like the disciples in that. We need to just feast on God's word. All right, back to the teaching. The last thing we see is we see that Jesus' teaching is explained. Jesus explains it himself. Peter goes, explain to this, this parable to us, Jesus. Now, honestly, of all the parables we've looked at so far, this was probably the easiest. Food goes in, it comes out. All right? It's not that hard of a parable. So what is going on here? Why is Peter asking this question? Peter's not asking this because he's extra dumb. He's asking it because the rest of the disciples are thinking it. Remember, Peter's kind of the spokesperson. But this is hard for the disciples to get. Remember, they've spent 30 years of their life living a system that says, do, 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 do. And this now, Jesus is saying, be. You need to be in here. Peter really does struggle with this, though, doesn't he? Remember, he has to have the vision of the unclean animals come down from heaven not once, not twice, but three times. Peter needs to hear things three times, it seems like. And even then, later on, Galatians tells us that Paul and Peter had a little headbutting because Peter went right back to the old ways. And then he finally gets it. Same thing for us. We need to get this the first time around. So Jesus goes, I'm going to explain it. Verse 16, are you still without understanding? Jesus is going, this is the parable you didn't get? He says, the heart is the main thing. Not our attendance at church, not our tithing, not our Bible memory, but it's the heart. And so we need to understand two things. One, we need to think about our hearts differently. We need to start with this idea that we need to watch over our hearts. Proverbs 4.23 Watch over our hearts with all diligence all the days of your life. We need this renewal all the time. We need to renew and be going and looking at our hearts constantly. Many of you have a regular doctor's appointment. You have to go in and get a checkup or get cleared or something like that. That's what we need to do on the daily basis with our hearts. Where is my heart? Because here's the thing. The chief danger is not from outside of us. It's not, it's not what the government's going to do. It's not what streaming platforms are doing. It's not what a politician does. The biggest problem is inside. Satan and the world cannot touch us as much as our hearts will if our hearts are bad. So the, the danger is inside of us. We need to remember the words of Solomon. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. The Pharisees trusted that what they were doing made them righteous. Oh, why, why, how do you know you're pure in heart? The Pharisees would say, I keep all these rules. Jesus goes, those rules do nothing if you don't deal with the heart. 
It's about, not about sanitation, it's about sanctification. So then Jesus finishes up in verses 17 through 20. He says there's two places to look for purity, uh, spiritual purity and impurity. It's the heart and the mouth. Verse 17, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes to the stomach and is expelled? Remember the picture. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. We can illustrate this. Let me, let me help you get this by something that I know is going to torment all of us in the next few weeks, if it hasn't already, and that is dandelions. Dandelions are terrible, right? Can I get an amen? Here's the thing. One, kids love to pick them up and blow those terrible seeds everywhere, right? All in your lawn, and they're not only that, but they, they, they pick them and they give them to their moms as a bouquet, making us men look really bad. But see, here's the thing. Every time a child picks one of those, the dandelion doesn't die, does it? If anything, it comes back stronger with two, right? And have you ever tried to get one of those dandelions, right? You get a little spade out and you dig down and you pop it off and you're like, oh, look, part of it broke off. Guess what will be there in a couple days? Another dandelion. See, dandelions, the problem with dandelions is the root. The root is there and we can't touch the root. You got to get a shovel. I mean, gall darn, sin, come on. Ruin this world, the curse We've got dandelions that go down like 20 feet. So you pop the dandelion out, but if you don't get the root, it comes right back. That's what Jesus is saying here. He says it doesn't matter what you do on the outside if you haven't touched the heart. The heart is the issue. And then he makes it even worse for us. Look at verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. Sin is not a splash of mud on the exterior, it's filth generated inside of each of us. So how do we know, how do we know that we have a defiled heart? Well, Matthew has laid out three ways. The first is that we choose man's word over God's word. We saw this with the Pharisees. Pharisees said, what we do is what matters. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worry about me, I'm going to worry about looking good, that's what matters. The Pharisees say, I look good, I will do this. And I will let other people tell me I look good. So the first way is that we choose man's way over God's way. The second way, Jesus has already talked about, is wicked words. It's not just specific words that we can avoid. Remember, there was a comedian that said there were these certain number of words you had to avoid to not get an R rating. It's not that way. It's not saying certain things and not saying other things. Like we talked about with the, I'm sorry, with a frown on your face. Words with a bad tone are just the same. I know of somebody who absolutely avoids all swear words in every single thing she watches, but yet at the same time has one of the worst mouths and one of the worst attitudes ever, but never swears. Is that any better? See, our world is full of dirty words, isn't it? As a matter of fact, it's the major pollutant of our world is our words. Words are a toxin. Our bad words show our bad hearts. And you may be saying, well, not me. I don't say bad words. See, that also includes what we don't say. It also includes what we type and we post and we text. But it gets worse than that. Jesus has made it clear. It's not just what we say or don't say, but it's also what we are thinking. You can sit there and you can say absolutely nothing, but if you're wishing that person that just cut you off would run into a bridge embutment, you're in the wrong place in your heart. See, all of our thoughts, all those things that are floating in our heads condemn us or they 
show that we're where we're supposed to be with our hearts. Which one is it going to be? Commend or condemn? The final thing he said, and this is what verse 19 said, is the wicked deeds. You know, follow, follow you around for a week with a camera. Would we see where we're supposed to see? Would we see a person that's the same person that's here on Sunday as the same one, middle of the day, Wednesday, Friday evening, Saturday night? You know, reality TV pretends to be real, and it's edited, and things are cut in and out. If you were to be followed around, what would you look like? The Bible says, out of the heart comes evil thoughts. Instead of it, you know, a defiled man has evil thoughts. Instead, an evil thoughts defile a man. Evil words and deeds defile because, one, it shows our lack of holiness, our lack of righteousness. But it also leads to worse. The thing about it is, is that the things that start in the heart and head don't usually stay there for long. The thing is, we are absolutely polluted from the inside. The cesspool is in our heart. Again, this is not the physical heart. This is the spiritual heart. In verse 20, Jesus uh, rounds it out and says, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So he finishes where we started in verse 1. And that's it. That's the end of the story. There's nothing else. You don't have to wash your hands. But oh, happy day. You got a polluted heart. Have a good day. Move along. But I did promise you that there was good news. See, the thing is, we can read this passage and go, where's the good news? How is this good news? But the good news started all the way back in Matthew 1, and Jesus has been beating the drum of it over and over again. Let me show you. Remember that Proverbs passage 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance? Philippians says something similar, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, Jesus is saying, the Pharisees don't got it. And they are the only other religious group at this time except for Jesus. It's time for the disciples to see and the crowds to see. Following Jesus is the only source of a pure heart. If the disciples can get this, they will know and they will live out the purity that's there. Because what did Jesus say way back in Matthew 5 when he's preaching in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And you're going, okay, I'm still not seeing how this is good news. Jesus is announcing the fact that he has arrived. And with his arrival, heart transplants are available today. The Ezekiel passage that we read last week, and I'm going to reference here is that he will take our heart of stone out, Ezekiel 26, and throw it away and give us a heart of flesh. Now, this doesn't mean a fleshly heart. It means a soft, malleable heart that he will form. Jesus is saying and announcing, the kingdom is here, the king is here, and I'm offering free admission to my kingdom. All you got to do is come to me and say, Lord, I want to be made clean. Remember when David sinned, He wrote Psalm 51, and in it he says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. He asks for all sorts of other things, but he says, I need a clean heart. This is the picture for us today. Throughout the New Testament, we see, New Testament and Old, we see the Holy Spirit must come in through Jesus to fix our hearts. Let me show you some examples. Psalm 51, it says, give us broken and contrite hearts. Romans 2.29, give us a circumcised heart. Hebrews 10.22, clean hearts. Don't worry if you can't write these all down. I'll send them out to you tomorrow. Making us a pure heart, 1 Peter 1. 
the new heart from Ezekiel 36, not 26, 36. Give us sincere hearts, Ephesians 6, so that we'll have hearts that will believe, Romans 10, 9, so that we might obey you, Deuteronomy 11, 13. And finally, Ephesians 3, 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Christ never sinned. He's never going to sin. And if he has full residence in your house, guess what there's no room for? There's no room for sin. We need to allow the Lord to take control of our hearts and move in, make himself comfortable, put his feet on all the furniture, and let him have every single closet space. Then and only then is his spirit unleashed, and those things that we think would save us, all these actions, they just become second nature. That's the promise of the Bible. It's not do all these things that are impossible so you're right with God. It's no, get right with God and then those impossible things become everyday occurrences. That's what it means to be a Christian. Let's not get that backwards. There's only one way we can have our hearts purified and that is if Jesus Christ purifies our hearts with his life, death, and resurrection and his Holy Spirit moves in and gives us a new heart. So how do you do that? It's pretty simple. Heart examinations on the daily. So if you're a believer here today, there are places that you are not letting the Lord get to. Let him get to those places. It's a simple thing. You just go to him and say, Lord, clean my heart. Where do I have places in my heart that I'm still holding on to? That there's sin in there. That there's pollution creeping in. If you're here today and that's never been done, it's time to do it. The polluted heart only lasts so long. Hearts give out. Christ's new heart that he gives us never gives out through eternity. Today's the day. Reach out. Take hold of it. He promises to wash your heart. He promises to take up residence and allow his Holy Spirit to work in you. Do not let another day go by with an unpurified heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and that we can come here before you now knowing that our works will never, ever be good enough to reach you. But Lord, your works were beyond compare, and they reached down and reached through the chasm, over the chasm between us and you, and you've taken hold of us, Lord. And you promise us to not, that you would not leave us on our own, that you would come and give us new hearts. So Lord, I pray for that today, Lord, that you would stir that up in each of us, whether we've heard messages like this for 50 years or this is the first time, I pray that you would stir it up in our hearts. We need you so desperately. So Lord, do a work in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.